Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. It is a new year, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and perhaps the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. And with me, all the way from Wales, is the gold standard in, well, I'd say the platinum standard in ghost hunting, the most honorable Stephen Parsons. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, that too. Uh, so is Wales a miserable country as it looks on film? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Completely <laughs> miserable. I was talking to my sister-in-law. She was watching some uh, British TV series uh, shot from Wales, and uh, she's what a dismal country that is! It's it's all so dark and 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 uh, it's hey, you know? yeah, only for nine months of the year. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah, I mean we have um, we have uh, about four weeks of summer and about three, two weeks each of spring and fall. Oh, good. But yeah, I mean we haven't seen. I think we've had four hours of sunshine in the last month. Wow, that's, that's... I, I kid you not. That's that's it's because it's because well, this part of Wales in particular um, is southwest, right out on the southwest, and the majority of our weather coming in from the Atlantic, uh, the warmer, you know, sort of uh, moist wind coming off the Atlantic over the cold land immediately uh, condenses into uh, low cloud and mist and drizzle. Um, and up in North Wales, where they have the big mountains, of course, they have mountain weather, so it basically rains all the time. Well, what was that? That was weird. Anyways. Um, so, yeah, pretty wet. Is, is, is there, like, do you have, like, they never depict any, like, new buildings and stuff. It's all these old, old houses. Yeah, it's lots of new buildings. Are uh, there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thoroughly modern country um in terms of architecture i mean yes we have more castles than just about anywhere else in the uk and uh, old you know old buildings dating i mean it's your house steve how, how old is your house uh the only dates to the 1980s okay so it's fairly new is it, it is, is it, it's is it uh, is it made like i mean you know to look like an older house or is no, it, it no it's basically a white Brick and concrete box um, with a slate roof um, and a window at the corners. Just looks like a modern house. Um, that said, the village we're in is quite old, like very old, because uh, we're about a hundred yards from an Iron Age village site, the site of an Iron Age village, or actually two Iron Age villages. Uh, these an Iron Age village, uh, so you're talking about uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Right. Um, because we live right on the crest, or right on the, the ridge, the top of a ridge, about 400 feet above sea level, and of course that was ideal for um, ideal land uh, for habitation. 
because right. you could obviously see anybody coming coming along. And of course, you were above the floodplain and in a slightly more temperate, uh, you know, drier part of the landscape. So, you know, at one end of the ridge, 100 yards to one side of us, we have an Iron Age settlement and likewise the other. And then even earlier, um, about 250 yards away, is a Bronze Age um, uh, burial chamber. So clearly the site was in use in the Bronze Age as well. So that's uh, about three and a half thousand. I, I did want to ask you about is, is that, you know, across the United States, we always, whenever we have a haunting or something, it's always buried on top of an Indian burial ground. Yeah. I think of, uh, you know, I think of Wales and I think of, you know, the size of the country and, and the number of inhabitants that had at various times. It, it's everything has got to be on top of something else. It, you know, I mean, everything from the well, way before the Romans, like you said, iron and bronze age to the Romans to, you know, your, your early kings. And, and uh, it, it's, it, does that give you more hauntings uh, or reports of hauntings? Well, actually, you would think so, but um, they seem to be pretty much in line with the rest of the UK uh, in terms of we seem to predominate. Uh, I mean, there are reportedly spirits that are associated with the the early area, the Roman ghosts, and there are uh, ghosts of um, Iron Age Celts. Oh, apparently. There are. apparently. Um, I mean, that, that's interpretive. You know, you. you, you People decide what what ghost or what era right. the ghost is. The ghost doesn't come up and say, "Hi, I'm from the Iron Age." Yeah, uh, well, you wouldn't you know from the language. With with well, uh, with the Treasurer's House ghost in York, of course, the, yeah, we the know that. Roman yeah. Legion. Um, yeah. that was that was quite distinctive. That was that was a visual, well, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the running figure, um, which is in Dorset. Uh, one of the English West West County, uh, Southwest counties, that's uh, described as being um, rather like a Celtic or an Iron Age figure. In the, it was quite sort of roughly clad. Uh, but the majority of the the phantoms in the UK tend to predominate around the medieval period and through to the Victorian era. Uh, I mean, here in West Wales, um, and we have a, a continuous land use from uh, the Bronze Age. We have Bronze Age uh, sites. We have Iron Age sites. We have Roman sites. We have early uh, Dark Ages sites. We have early medieval, medieval, post-medieval, you know, right yeah, the way through to the present. The whole, yeah, layered one upon the other. Mm -hmm. um, now, the vast majority of the phantoms that people report uh, in and around this area relate to the medieval period and specifically monks who seem to predominate. Now, that could be, again, interpretive because whenever you look at a, a, a picture of a monk, you, you have this classic sort of image in your right. head, you know, a, a dark clad hooded figure uh, yeah. with, uh, cowled and veiled. Um, but in reality, that was... Uh, pretty much the medieval attire uh, for about 400 years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people tended to wear that sort of uh, garb for that length of time. Um, and so if you see a hooded, cowled figure, you might say, oh, I saw a monk. But in reality, you could have seen a figure from, you know, other periods in history too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the ones that we have out here are predominantly reported as being monks. And we do have, you know, quite a lot of religious ruins uh, and establishments or remains of religious establishments out here, you know, going back to uh, pre uh, the dis dissolution of the monasteries. So why, why do we have uh, more spirits like from that time period than, I mean, are there tons of, I mean, we have more people now, wouldn't it be more spirits from modern age, like uh, pre after World War II or even after Korea? Or, uh, because we had more people there, or wh why are we seeing, uh, are reportedly seeing more medieval and like not too many at all uh, uh, prior to that? Is, is, any suggestions of or, or theories on why that? Well, there have been a number of theories put forward. Uh, one supposes that, uh, for example, ghosts eventually fade away. Um, you know, for those people that subscribe to the recording theory, uh, that would work. Um, right. It's you know that, that it, over time the remnant of the apparition disappears or fades away and becomes gradually less and less and less. Uh, and so ghosts would have some form of time frame. Uh, there are obviously exceptions, which we talked about just before. Um, right. In in regard to there are also, just to clarify, there are also relatively modern sightings. They yeah, are fewer. They are fewer. That, when you think of the number, sheer number of people in yeah. modern times versus medieval times, you would think you would, it would be the flip flop. You would. You know, we would have you, so many more modern. Yeah, people. that's that. That would be uh, what you would expect. And of course, there are investigators who claim that is actually the case that they are, you know, that they detect the ghosts and apparitions uh, on, during their investigations that are relatively modern. If we think, of the, in right. fact, of uh, that notable television programme, Most Haunted, uh, many of the apparitions or, or spirits that they encountered or claim to have encountered tend to be sort of rec fairly recent in, um, in relation to the context of the building. So, for example, if the building was a 1930s or 1960s building, then the Phantom would be, uh, was often claimed to be from that era. Uh, but it's, it's perfectly true that we do have this sort of predomination. Now, uh, as to why, as to explanations, one, one uh, theory could be it relates to how people describe their experience. Um, so, as I, as I already said, British or, or costume didn't change that much until post-World War II. Um, you know, there was, uh, in fact, it was Anne Winsper was one of the people who, who uh, took an interest in this. Uh, but there have been there have been other more academic uh, studies done that look at British costume. Um, and for the longest period, our costume only changed or the dress of the general class only changed relatively slowly. So it would be very difficult for a normal person to say, tell the difference between a Georgian, a Victorian and an Edwardian. Mm -hmm. And it really is only until we get sort of post-World War One, um, and then increasingly post-World War Two, that we see sort of fixed periods. We can recognise clothing from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, uh, from the 1930s. 
but before the before the twentieth century, you know, clothing it did change, but it changed very very slowly. And so, what you might be seeing in that, or uh, when when we get these sort of bulking up of reports around particular areas, is just a uh, a misunderstanding of what people are seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, the hooded figure is always a monk, therefore they're always... Or it could be a psychological thing. It could be something related to the national psyche. Because uh, during um, the Tudor period, um, following Henry VIII, and then through Ed, through to Edward VI, um, we lost our state religion. Um, we went from a Catholic country to a Protestant country, predominantly. It became the state religion was uh, changed from Catholicism to Protestantism. And that left a, uh, I think it must have left some sort of um, mark in the national psyche. You know, we have a lot of uh, sort of remnants from that period. And it may be that some of the reports are just simply linked to this sort of uh, religious upheaval that took place then. And the fact that all of a sudden monks who were a common sight uh, within the communities and an important part of the communities all of a sudden vanished. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe, maybe that sort of left some, some psychological legacy on us. And the other thing is is that we see spirits or, or reported sightings of spirits uh, for sometimes younger ghosts than when they died, which is intriguing as well. And, and we're talking uh, not necessarily that of, uh, you know, residual versus an intelligent, uh, if you use those words, um, and, and that one that a, that a spirit communicates with you is that uh, he may be younger than when he died. So we have that paradox as well. We do. The, the biggest paradox or the biggest problem we have to overcome is actually the apparition itself and the re, the account of the apparition. First of all, uh, apparitions are not that common. Um, if you put it on Facebook, they're quite common. <laughs> yeah, if you put it on Facebook. But in reality, um, the 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 uh, they're in they're in third place behind the most common form of paranormal experience is one relating to smell uh, followed by temperature that's surprising uh well temperature comes even even down below apparition Um, really now that's really surprising to me but the in 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 order of most commonly reported is number one is smell number two is sound number three is the apparition and i think fourth is is the the sense of sense of touch and i think or sense of presence, and then you have the um, the temperature below below that. Where do you uh, get these figures from, Steve? Just curious. Uh, these are actually done from uh, surveys done of people's experiences uh, that have been right. variously oh, cool. carried out by the Society for Psychical Research, right, amongst, thank you. amongst thank others. You. Yeah. Uh, but it's the other thing that's even uh, that we've also got to uh, clarify is that. When we talk about apparitions, there is a whole spectrum of apparitions from corner of the eye, fleeting, shadowy, misty figures through to ones where there is a high degree of clarity um, within the visual image. And they are incredibly rare. Uh, So the majority of apparitions 
are just blurry, indistinct, uh, vague human shapes, whereas ones that have got any detail to them um, only form a very small percentage of people's apparitional experiences. And so it's not really surprising that we don't get um, so much detail because they are very much in the minority of of, um, people's experiences. I mean, if you just look at television programs, for example, um, you know, in the hundreds of different shows that have been broadcast, there are actually very few apparitional reports um, and fewer still captured on camera. And those that are captured on camera always tend to be the vague shadowy sort of roughly human figure you no television program yet has produced a detailed apparition like has been reported by some people who mm-hmm. yeah the the is is that when we do see spirits i mean we don't even know what a ghost was and i think that no, we don't which really causing the big kind of i mean because we have you know, if you die and you believe that, that the spirit goes to a better place, then, you know, why, uh, it, you know, and also what, what is the thing? You know, all your, your ailments will be healed and, and so forth. And, and and yet we see ghosts with glasses, you know, and, and, and we see one-legged ghosts. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, there's, there's so many different things that, that just makes it so intriguing. Uh, you know, we don't have that black and white answer to some of these questions. We don't have a black and white answer to any of the questions in reality. Um, What we're left with are supposition, hypothesis, theory, conjecture, ideas, belief, um, expectation, all manner of uh, human frailties, because we have no, we have no definitive answer to whether we survive death at all. Um, we have a desire, a lot of people have a desire to, to um, survive death. Um, but what happens beyond death um, and the, the reports that people claim as factual are in reality uh, nothing of the sort. Uh, we do have accounts of what it's like on the other side of the veil, but these come in the form of uh, spiritual messages from the other side. Um, delivered through a human medium or written down after being, you know, sort of um, dictated through a human medium by the spirit realm. Or some type of physical uh, communication uh, through a device of some sort. Well, yeah, yeah, in response to raps, taps, and is it cold, is it warm, is it like it is on here? But all of these are, you know, they have to be looked at through the, the filter of the human medium. Um, or the device or mechanism that's being used to uh, channel or interpret the message. So we don't actually have any information at all about, you know, do we survive death? Do ghosts exist? What they are, what they might be, what it's like to be a ghost. Um, I I, I do remember on Most Haunted being asked one night um, during one of the lives, there'd been, you know, orbs seen and objects thrown up, small stones thrown about, you know, the usual television fare. And um, I was asked, well, you know, what does this mean? And I said, well, I hope personally that death is final. And the guy looked at me and he, he said, what do you mean? I went, well, 
you know, if I'm if this is it, if if the afterlife means that I just come back as a soap bubble that throws stones, I don't want to know. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty crap afterlife. Yes, if, you, if you just sort of drift around as an aimless soap bubble and throw the occasional small stone at people, mm-hmm. you know, it's. Uh, but the mediums, the spiritualists, tell us that life is, that, that afterlife isn't like that. They tell us that it's a, merely a continuation, a, de- a development of the life that we we live here on on you know sort of in the the realm of the, the living, I suppose you would call it. And, and that kind of reflects the message in the Bible as well, doesn't it? You know, the Bible says that, you know, when you die, you will go to God's house where somebody will prepare a room for you or many rooms for you, blah, blah, blah. But again, I mean, the Bible is wasn't written by God, despite what the nice lady who keeps knocking on our door insisting. It was written in the fourth century or put together in the fourth century from a collection of other books all written by people. Right. And so not really any more reliable than any of the books that have been put together by spiritualists or anybody else for that matter. And in reality, the, that's, Harry Potter. Basically, <laughs> that's basically what we're talking about in ghost experiments is, is people experiences uh, being conveyed. So the Bible is the same thing as what's, they conveyed at, from some purpose or whatever, but uh, it, it's a it's a report. Uh, it's a, it's a very subjective account of what people believe to be the case, um, and that's not just the Bible. I mean, all of the holy books are the same. Um, none of them were actually written by the, um, except, the people. Except, that, for, except for the Ten Commandments. Uh, well, they lost them, didn't they? He smashed them, so we'll never know. Well, actually, it was two sets. No, actually, it was two sets from him. In fact, in the Ark of the Covenant, the uh, well, we've lost that set, and Moses smashed the other set. So, uh, so could find it, you know. So, well, you know, if it turns up, then we can reevaluate it. But at the moment, we don't actually have anything that wasn't written down by human hand. Right, um, and that's and. It's interesting that you use the, the sort of uh, analogy to, or the uh, um, uh, the link to uh, paranormal investigation because to many people, a belief in the paranormal is exactly the same and akin to a belief in the, in the supernatural in, in terms of religion. Right. Uh, and you see uh, them get very worked up. If you challenge this belief... Um, in what they're doing and what they believe to be the case. So if you, they, you know, if you see the evidence that people post onto social media and some people are crazy enough to challenge them and to say, hey, this is, oh, uh, yeah, this is you know, nothing. Um, it, it, it doesn't prove anything. People get very, very uh, worked up about it. They get very defensive of their position. And that's exactly the same that you see when people... Um, who are strongly religious um, have their religious beliefs attacked. They oh, get yeah. very defensive about it. So, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between the two. What you're asking, you know, what when you when you go to church, people are asking you to believe in an unseen deity that controls everything, and you know, we have you know our destinies are pre-decided, pre-decided and when we die, we go off to this wonderful magical place uh, somewhere 
above the clouds, kind of, uh, because hell is always down below, so heaven is always up above. Um, unless you're a flat earther. Unless you're a flat earther. Um, well, actually, the flat earthers, uh, the, the people who believe in the flat earth, uh, predominantly are strongly and fervently uh, Christian. Really? Because, because belief in the flat earth um, is very powerfully linked to the creation um, rather than evolution um, argument. Sorry. Because, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've actually watched many, many flat earth videos. And um, a lot of them are actually put out by Christian organizations or are sponsored by Christian organizations because a flat earth with a dome, uh, a celestial dome above it is proof of God, God's creation. God created this disc world that uh, the flat earthers believe in. It's not a natural creation. The fact that the sun is only suspended three and a half thousand miles above us uh, and that rockets can't get into space and they can't pe uh, penetrate the firmament mm -hmm. uh, which the stars are painted upon mm -hmm. all Chinese. and uh, you know there's no such thing as gravity uh, blah blah and australia doesn't exist blah 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 is a uh, the vast majority of the videos are either uh, heavily pro-christian or uh sponsored by christian organizations intriguing that I wasn't aware of, but uh, I'll, I'll take your word for it. It's absolutely the fact that I, go go check out um, the videos, um, and I invite anybody to do so, and you will see the same pattern. There are obviously outliers where there are people who are just, uh, you know, coming at it from their own direction, but the 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 large proportion of them are linked uh, in some way to religious organisations sponsored by or are very pro-Christian. Hmm. was not aware of that and that's I know we're coming up to the break but uh, you know the other intriguing thing that I find now is that on these TV shows that are out there and there are so so many of these ghosts and I really thought that the ghost shows would begin to dissipate but unfortunately they, they're coming on stronger and stronger yeah oh. we've got more to you this year yeah and uh, America, I mean, uh, Most Haunted just made its way here. I saw that's it on a, that's a shame. <laughs> TV uh, last night, so uh, intriguing. But uh, they've gone a different way. They're now no more hunting of ghosts. It's a, a hunting of demons now. And oh, very much so. Because, uh, well, we're coming up to an ad break, but it's something, yeah, we have moved... Uh, we have evolved. The television world has evolved. The TV ghost program has evolved, and it's been a steady evolution over time. And we'll have to take a look at that a little closer after the break. But uh, you're listening to uh, Ghost Chronicles uh, International with Steve Parson and Ron Kolick, our first show of the year. And uh, we're talking about ghosts, and soon we'll be talking about ghost hunting groups who, I guess, that should change their name to demon hunters uh, because they're no longer ghost hunters, they're demon hunters. So we'll be right back and uh, right here on Pararex and uh, Tojanet Radio, and uh, we'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Toginet, 
Radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Lurches drunkenly into life. So does Ghost Chronicles International with our first show of 2019, hosted by New England's own Van Helsing and the Gold Standard. Welcome back to part two. Yep, here we are. So just before the break, we were talking a little bit about well, the trend in ghost hunting to demons. So you know, maybe the show should be called Demon Hunters rather than Ghost well, Hunters. I think actually, there, I think there is one, isn't there? Yeah, one, but I mean just about every one now because they go out on these investigations. It's always a demon. They always get scratched, and there's so many well, scratches. Yeah, you know, that's actually interesting because um, the television has actually taken a lead um, and has changed the way that ghost investigation um, happens. Uh, and this has come about through, through the simple expedient of we need more viewers in order to make a show successful. You've got to keep the viewers watching. You've got to keep the interest. You've got to sell the advertising revenue. Um, and, you, you know, so you've got to keep upping the stakes, upping the ante. Uh, and you've seen that progression um, from the earliest days where people were, the investigators were quite content to wander aimlessly through uh, old buildings uh, looking for the the headless phantom or the grey lady or the white figure that glided. There was actually a lot of debunking going on at that time. Yeah. Sorry, but the thing, I hate that word. Now, but... of course, after a while, that became quite passe. You know, once you'd done a couple of series of that, you needed to up the ante. So then we had the uh, lots of phantoms of murderers and their cohorts and their victims. You know, they became very fashionable for a few series uh, where it was always victims and murderers. And then, of, yeah, he's a bad nivy, a famous line. Um, and then, again, you have to up the ante. So it wasn't just, you know, you weren't just content with dealing with a murderer or the phantom of a murderer or the apparition or the remnant of a murderer. It had to be something more. It had to be demonic, monstrous, genuinely scary. Now, that's television, but the reality. But 
television has led um, the investigators, you know, the the, the people who set up their groups and who watch the shows and the fans of the shows, it led them, uh, not just with, you know, equipment that they saw on television shows, but also the methods and the the style of the investigating that was got, that was taking place. And now uh, in the, the field of amateur investigators, they predominantly are dealing with uh, the darker forces. Uh, we have many, many, many more exorcist stroke investigators or investigators who are dealing, you know, confronting demons than was ever the case uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And that's that's the that's just the nature of of the the way that the hobby is uh, as an activity, as a pursuit, has changed in response to. The, its portrayal on television, and then it's uh, the way that that portrayal is reflected within the groups themselves and spread between the groups themselves on social media. Um, and it is absolutely the case that we have gone all the way back now to the medieval period, because prior to the Renaissance, things that went bump in the night, um, strange things that couldn't be explained, were usually classified as demonic or the, the interactions of demons. True. And now, at the start of the 21st century, we've, we, we are now blaming demons once again. We have regressed from, you know, through 600 years of... Killing burning witches again. That, well, we've got to flat earth. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't start persecuting witches again. Yeah. You know, we, we are just rewinding the clock where we've, I, I, I think as, as, the, as the media and as individuals explore the pursuit more and more and more, um, and as social media allows people to interact um, with one another, it allows people the opportunity to express their desires. And if somebody is standing on a beach or on top of a mountain and they see a flat horizon, then all of their senses are telling them that the world around them is effectively flat. Uh, they haven't been into outer space. They don't trust uh, government. They don't trust government agencies because they have been demonstrably lied to by governments and government agencies. No, really? Uh, well, just think back to the Bay of Pigs as one. Um, and so people mistrust science and people mistrust NASA. NASA in particular has been, you know, sort of put up as a US government conspiratorial agency for the advancement of the new world order so many times, you know. The flat earthers say there is not a single photograph of the world, of the globe earth from space uh, showing true. the entire and it's not true. It, it absolutely isn't true. Um, there are very few. I mean, even and they, you know, they point to the fact that the the NASA website actually has a photo composite of the Earth because it's taken from a low Earth orbiting satellite to get some uh, clarity. And then, in order to be able to, you know, portray the the Earth as it is, it's then photoshopped and composited back together again as a series of, as effectively a photo mosaic. Yeah, actually, you can go to the uh, Library of Congress and you can find many, many uh, hard-covered books, and I have quite a few, on uh, NASA photographs. And, That's yeah, right. Yeah, but the majority of... readily I mean, available. What people see and what people rely on are their senses. And they're, 
you know, when they when they're on the coast, when they're on a mountain top, when they look around them and they see the earth is flat, they're they're taught at school that water will always find that it, you know its own level, and yet science is telling them that the water is clinging to a ball <laughs> and has a curvature. Now that. That is, you know, it, it causes this cognitive dissonance in people. They they can't hang on a minute. Well, if it if it's flat, and it always finds a level, it's you know its own level. Water will always find a level. How can it stick to the surface of a ball? So what they'll do then, and I've seen these, I've seen these videos where they get a tennis ball and they soak it and then they spin it really fast and of course all the water flies off. And they're told by the scientists that the Earth is spinning it. Fraction around somewhere around about a thousand miles an hour, um, and they say, "Well, well, hang on a minute. If that's the case, why isn't all the water flown off? <laughs> Got flung off like it does with a tennis ball? And why, if you take off in a jet, um, you know, uh, in New York, um, does the Earth not just rotate underneath the plane? But of course." Science can explain all of those apparent anomalies, but they're very, very difficult for people to get their head around. Uh, this idea that, you know, uh, science apparently contradicts itself and it contradicts and apparently contradicts what they're experiencing as, as human beings and right. through their own senses. It's very, very difficult for people to reconcile what they're seeing and what you know, what the reality is, right? Because of many many variations, though, because of different phenomena that occur and so forth, but not just uh, because of deceit or uh, lack of uh, you are seeing what you're seeing as far as you're aware of, but there are certain phenomena that creates what you're seeing as well. Yeah, but I mean, you actually only see about twelve miles if you stand at sea level. You only yeah. See... I, don't, I don't want to go too much into the flat world stuff that that's been done yeah, with. But, I but go back to ghosts. I'm talking about yeah. You're seeing spirits and so forth, and and a lot of the people. I mean, we, we most are are well, actually, all of our evidence is is based on uh, testimony. And so we have the witness, and from there we go where we go. But th that's an important part of, uh, you know, paranormal is the witness testimony. It's incredibly important part of it. it it's it's the nub of the whole thing because. But it's not all deceit. If somebody says, "Well, you're crazy," or, or you you know you know you didn't <laughs> see that. In reality, you believe you saw that, but there are other phenomena that can create certain things that uh, you see that you can interpret uh, differently. Yeah, but the wise investigator will always take the, uh, assuming that the witness is not, not out and out lying, then the wise investigator will always take the witness testimony um, as being a truthful account of what they experienced. Mm -hmm. And then from there, seek to Use that as a stepping stone towards discovering what really what really transpired. Mm -hmm. um, to dismiss the witness out of hand simply because it sounds fanciful is is completely uh, erroneous and foolish. Um, you know, rather it would be it would be crazy beyond belief just to simply wipe up you know 
put a strike out the the account because you didn't believe in the existence of ghosts as a human experience because as a human experience they absolutely do exist and they've been reported by countless people over countless generations going right the way back to you know the dawn of recorded history you know you can't wipe out human experience it would be like saying love doesn't exist we can't measure it but we know that you know lots of people around the world know and understand the concept uh what ghost investigators need to be doing or what and in fact academic research parapsychologists should be doing is starting off on the basis of the witness believes uh, that what they're describing is how that is what they experienced mm-hmm. now what information within that testimony can we use to try to tease out what took place was it something that actually took place that they witnessed was it something that caused them to have an experience was it something that caused them to hallucinate an experience or believe that they had an experience but to simply say they didn't have the experience is complete nonsense true true now we do have a question in the chat room, yeah. so we, sh- we should address that how do uh, it relates to most haunted uh, and it's from john and he's, he asks how do they how they pick the loca- how do they pick the location and when they tape an episode did they spend more than one night at a location uh, right to pick a location was basically they had some researchers who are, uh, would uh, you search the internet, read books, um, the same way as investigators do. People would obviously also write into the show once it became successful and suggest places, and then the researchers would, would have a look at them. Did they spend... Um, I can only talk about the time I was on the show, and um, a camera... A, it was often a case of uh, a couple of uh, days or the day before the main shoot... Um, one or two of the camera team would go along to get some general shots. So they would just be a, uh, location shots. Speed they footage. weren't. Yeah, it was just it was just they were called GVs, um, and they were just the location stuff that they needed to segue into the different parts of the program. So the exterior shots, the staircases, blah blah blah. The program, uh, the production uh, team themselves um, spent. They they would arrive sort of middle of the day and they would leave next day at sunup or close to that was the sort of general time span that they were there um and of that time so during the daytime there would be setting up there'd be all these sort of headshots and talking to the camera shots and then they do the the, the various walk arounds and the different vigils and then they'd uh, de-rig and uh, set off back to the hotel or home or wherever people needed to be afterwards. So generally they were on the location for anything between 12 and 20 hours. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Now, you know, a lot of these shows you look at them, like you see them on TV and of course they're not anyway, uh, made the way you think he is. For instance, A Haunting, which we were involved with this past summer, is that uh, Leslie was, you know, had to go to a B&B, and uh, it was uh, Airbnb, so it was rented, and they would do their interviews with her, 
and uh, the homeowners and of the case and all this other stuff. And then that footage uh, would be taken back to the studio, I believe, which is in Washington, outside of Washington. And they had a huge studio there. And then they would have reenactors reenacted in the same place they always do. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, do it that way, and then they would put it all together that way. So it was all separate components put together. But it wasn't like, you know, they were actually at the locations that uh, these events took place in. Well, that's normal for, for any television program, regardless of its content. They're, they're often, they're like movies, aren't they? They're, I mean, you've done enough of them to realize that they're often just stitched together. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to, you know, you, you have to make the program, and it's often impossible to get everybody into the right place at the right time. Um, so, you know, there are the practical necessities that have to be sort of dealt with in, in making a, a, you know, a program of any sort. Um, you know, people can't always be got together in the same place at the same time. Now, we we talk about uh, sightings of ghosts and spirits, and is there any? Correlation to the weather and uh, uh, these sightings? Um, there have been different people have explored the idea, um, and there have been different theories again put forward uh, as to you know whether su- summer, winter, autumn, um, whether it's you know whether it's hot and humid, whether it's cold and dry, whether it's wet and foggy, and there are you know there are possibly some patterns. Some people have indicated that there have been patterns um, within um, sightings that suggest that you know the weather might be implicated, or condition weather conditions or prevailing conditions might be implicated in some of the experiences. Um, and there are, you know, the, the, there are people who have theorised that uh, if ghosts or the apparitions are electromagnetic, then the hot, dry, arid conditions um, where the electrostatic uh, energy in the atmosphere is is electrically at a higher potential than, for example, in damp, humid conditions. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I was thinking of that. I was thinking of whales, actually, when I asked this question, because of, I assume you have a lot of fog there. Yes, and, we do. And, you know, if if you, for instance, think of uh, EVPs, where, where EVP people will tell you they take the white noise or the static on a recorder and the spirits manipulator to put their voices on, I would think that, you know, for instance, the fog, be ideal for that. That's also in uh, reflective photography as well. The more results you get, uh, they could use the fog to manipulate the molecules to show themselves. I mean, that would fit on that same theory. Well, I mean, that's your theory or somebody else's theory. Well, You're enti- <laughs> and, and, and they're entitled to it. Um, I can only relate that notion to one example where, uh, and it was the Liverpool time slips uh, that Anne and I explored and continue to explore because there was no seeming pattern to them. Um, You know, there was uh, in terms of the step back. So some people would report um, only a few years, some people decades, tens of decades or longer. There was no seeming pattern other than the location, uh, which was quite sort of tightly focused on one area of Liverpool. 
But one thing that did start to strike strikers uh, in the accounts is that they predominated in the winter months and often described the accounts, uh, the weather. For those, uh, were the weather conditions um, were recalled or formed part of the testimony as being in the sort of damp, murky, misty, wintry months. And that was the only time that uh, I, I think that, you know, we, we commented on a possible uh, pattern um, or some some similarity between reports. Oh, um, there are, of course, I mean, people have also suggested um, that um, climactic conditions may play a part in some of the cyclical ghosts. You know, the ghosts that always appear at the same place at the same time year after year, Anne Boleyn and Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, that's, that's always been annoying to me because, you know, you, you talk to spiritualists, one time they'll tell you, oh, there's no time in the spirit world, and yet we have anniversary hauntings. And and then the calendar has certainly changed through the years, so that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> that, that whole thing is, is really a, a huge paradox to me. I have... No clue which way to go with that. Well, uh, again, um, when people have, recent, have looked into and, and have gone to the sites where these different uh, cyclical apparitions are you know, supposed to be uh, being counted, right. obviously oh, then, like Borley, the 28th of July and uh, New Year's Eve, I think it's Heaver Castle for Anne Boleyn and a whole raft of others. Right, right. Uh, I mean, there's there's tons of them through the. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're always disappointed because the apparition doesn't show up. The, the spirit just doesn't show up. You know, they're always left sort of, oh well, didn't turn up this time. Um, now, in relation to uh, links to climactic conditions, um, it, again, it's been suggested that if if you are looking at uh, something within the environment that's causing people to have the experience or interpret it as a paranormal experience then the conditions in july every year are similar m m you know most julys are similar to the preceding julys and the julys that are subsequent to it and it's the same in the winter months so you would get a similarity of conditions occurring and those conditions may if they are a triggering factor then uh, you know if the trigger if the triggering factor requires hot dry um, hot dry weather then you're not likely to get that in December you are more likely to get that in a few of the summer months so those experiences if they are triggered experiences are more likely to predominate around the same time of the calendar and then people start to say oh well it happens every year around the same time oh and her birthday was then so perhaps it's a birthday figure or perhaps it's a you know a link to some important anniversary related to the site mm -hmm. so you know, there are you know again people interpreting the information they went the way they want to right i know we're coming down to us the end of the show but i i do have a question uh that came up on a, a previous show on the next generation show that i wanted to talk to you about while we're on the subject and uh i had mark uh, nesmith on from gettysburg <laughs> and uh we were talking about time slips and i there's if anybody knows time slips, I believe it's you, Steve. So, 
What are you doing? You're making so much noise. Sorry, the bookshelf just fell down. <laughs> ah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> is, is it a time slip if you only witness a period of time, or is it a time slip that you have to actually be in it? For instance, uh, if you were... Uh, you know, like those people in, in in the time slip thing, they were walking down the street and then they were back in another period of time. But what if they were uh, coming out of a door of a a uh, sweet shop and they and they looked out and it was a different period of time, but yet they were still in that sweet shop. Is that still a time slip? Um. Well, the trouble, I think, as Anna said on several occasions, that it's nearly impossible to tell. If you have an account of a time slip and an account of a haunting experience, the two of them are so similar, it's very hard to tell the two of them apart. Um, And the only real difference being is interactivity, although there are interactive hauntings. Um, But the majority of time slips do seem to have an interactive component in that uh, something within the scene will respond to or interact right, but that with. Still happening in the doorways. Uh, exactly, exactly, it can. Yeah. Um, but that is less common in hauntings, which which is why you have what might be replay hauntings or the uh, recording phenomena. Um, so whilst they all might be part of the same spectrum of phenomena and we just label some of them as, as time slips and some of them as hauntings and some okay. of them as poltergeists. Uh, those that are more often oh, labelled oddings, <laughs> those, those experiences which are most often labelled as time slips usually involve an element of interactivity within the, uh, within the experience. Okay. So they may have spoken with or noted something within the scene or, or something... Something that sort of strongly suggests that time. I mean, there are some where the person actually uh, lost time, rather like in with the UFO encounters. Right. And so they, (laughs) well, I mean, they would then say that their experience was a time slip experience um, because they lost time. But there are also lost time experience uh, reports within hauntings as well. You know, the whole thing just seems to be more of a spectrum than nicely uh, partitioned off pigeonholes. I know you had your own time slip experience with the man on the bike. I remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. That was quite a strange one. Right. And I had, like I said, I mentioned uh, that I, I did lose a, over an hour, I guess, of time that I can't explain. Um, but I've never really thought of that as I really couldn't explain it. I guess that's the best way to put it. I was going to I not necessarily thought of as as paranormal or a top slip. I don't think I don't think Anne and I did. We just struck it. It just struck us as an oddity and something. I mean, there are oddities that take place, you know, fairly regularly in people's mm-hmm. lives. Uh, coincidences and um, you know unusual events that sometimes run together. And it was just that we were investigating a particular type of case at the time when it happened that we I think that we we jokingly um, made more of it than than we ordinarily would have done I don't we don't ever you know we didn't think that the two of them were ever linked oh okay yeah you know we didn't think that the experience that we had going uh, to to see the witness was linked to the case 
but it just struck us as you know a very unusual thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and then you like to tell stories about it, and it's you know you, you, we haven't exaggerated the story, but it's always a nice story to tell. So, do you think that's that's one of the problems of investigators nowadays? Is they they're willing to quickly jump at that, a leap at that conclusion that it must be paranormal, it must be this, it must be that. Even well, if it supports their belief, then, yeah, why not? I, you know, people, people, if people strongly believe in, in UFOs as, mm. as extraterrestrial uh, and they see a light in the sky that they don't immediately understand, they're more likely to report that as a, as a UFO than, oh, I saw a weir- really weird light in the sky. No, you see really weird lights that I don't understand, you know, fairly often. Um, because I don't know the paths of all the satellites. Um, mm. I don't know, you know, all Space of the... Space station, whatever. Exactly. Um, Unfortunately, but, uh, we've got to wrap it up because we're all... Right. Put the shelf back together. <laughs> so anyways, you've been listening to Ghost Chronicles International with uh, Steve Parsons and Ron Kolek right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio. And uh, tune in tomorrow on The Next Generation where we look at... New England nightmare. These are all accounts of strange and unusual things that happened in New England. So tune in tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, here at the same station. So till then, good night. God bless. God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law.